All right, good morning. Let's get started here this morning. Always good to have the time of fellowship, but I want us to dive into our study on sanctification. If you were with us 11 or 12 years ago, uh, we, we surveyed a new book that had come out on a practical application of sanctification. I'll reference it for you uh, if you want to look it up. Tim Chester uh, and his book, You Can Change. Uh, he wants us to find hope in the doctrine of sanctification. Uh, and so we're going to survey the 10 questions that he asks about change, uh, beginning with the first question today, which just provokes some thought by asking, what would you like to change? What would you like to change? Now, I don't mean necessarily I'd like you know to change from my cubicle to a corner office with a window, um, that may be a desire you have, but we're talking about change with regard to our journey of following Jesus Christ, this discipleship. Um, so what would you like to change? That's the question we want to just explore this morning. And again, we can't cover everything as the author presents it, and so if you want to look up that book and read along, uh, you're welcome to do that. I may have another copy or two I'll see in Bring those next time if that could help somebody. When we talk about change, personal change, change of character, change of habits, we can steer that change toward two targets. Uh, Think with me about who we could be thinking of in regards to change. What What are the two targets for change when we're talking about changing character? changing habits, changing uh, spiritual disciplines? Who are the categories of people that we can be thinking about when it comes to change? Saved and unsaved. Saved and unsaved, that's true. Uh, Let's move into the category of those who have been saved. They're putting their faith in Jesus Christ. You hear a message on change, and what are the two directions your thoughts could go? (laughs) Others or yourself. Um, Sometimes we hear a sermon and we're thinking, oh man, this is really good. I really need that. And then the other 51 weeks out of the year, right? It's like, oh man, my wife, she she needs this. Thank you for preaching this message. Uh, It's not all bad to recognize that there are these two targets. We hear about change and we think, one, I need to do better. And at other times, we, we rightly think, man, I was just talking to so-and-so this week, and that's what they need to hear. I need to file that away and work that into a conversation. So when we're thinking of change uh, throughout the study of this book, realize, yes, this is for us. This is equipping us for personal change. And again, change is our kind of common Colloquial term for sanctification. That big word that implies holiness and being set apart to God for his purpose is simply put, change. Change in the Christian life from the old way of living more and more to the way of living that best reflects the image of Christ. So personal change is certainly a goal. However, Equipping us to help others change is also a goal. 
whether we like it or not, every one of us uh, on this journey of following Jesus, we are counselors. We open our mouths and we talk to people about their problems. Sometimes we're pretty lame counselors because we just kind of affirm how bad it is and we kind of just contribute to a pity party. Maybe not intentionally. We're not trying to blow them off. We're not trying to help them wallow in despair. But if we're not careful, that's what we do. So hearing about change, how in light of circumstances that could press in, circumstances that could overwhelm like a flood, we, we should be able to be talking to people in such a way that like Paul, we're helping them be renewed from the inside so that even if they're saying life is distressing, it's overwhelming, I, I'm being buried, they could say like Paul, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. Our task then is, yes, personal change. I need to keep growing. But our task every day is also to help others change, to help them taste renewal from the inside so that they can plow through this life that can be at times extremely challenging. So truth be known, if we all kind of had our moment of, you know, reckless abandon and actually shared what we want to change in our lives, truth be known, we probably all have something that Hebrews describes as a besetting sin. We lined up to run the race and the gun goes off. We are running the race. We're looking unto Jesus. We're trying to endure. And yet there is this sin that so easily slows us down, Hebrews says. That whole picture is just that word picture of, of that Olympic race. We all have something we want to change. We can probably acknowledge what it is that slows us down and, and we're told again and again, be, be setting that aside, put it aside and run this race. That's the question we're trying to ask. What would you like to change? It may be an old habit from your days before coming to faith in Christ. You may have spent years or decades in, in ways of thinking and habits of action that are hard because they, they kind of have a grip on, on your brain and the way you function. And that's why the Bible calls us to, to stop being conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of the mind. It's this process of, of metamorphosis, just like that caterpillar in that cocoon changes. It, it, it's, the, it's the same stuff, but it's taking on a different form. When we're made a new creation in Christ, that constant change after that point means we're, we're, we're the same stuff. The real change happened when we got saved. When we came to faith in Christ, Paul tells the church at Corinth, you became a new creation. You're a partaker of the divine nature. It's being worked into you. Now that nature is the one we're trying to see continually shaping, metamorphosizing into something that looks more and more like Christ. A short temper that seems to show up no matter how much you try to, to like rein it in. The, the fear of man and what people think. 
maybe it's a desire to control, and so we're always kind of meddling in our kids' business and in other people's because we just want to make sure everything's right and control everything and get it said, and it's really a struggle of faith to trust that God's the only one that can do that. There are these besetting sins that we should want to change, and more, more than likely, they have plagued us long enough that we easily can identify kind of our individual public enemy number one. Maybe there's a couple enemies lined up behind them, but you probably know that one thing that if you just had that one wish granted and could say, I, I never want to struggle with this again, what would it be? Um, the hope in the doctrine of sanctification is that faith in Christ means we are washed. We're clean. But now we're asked to follow Jesus and, and we're kind of getting dirty along that journey. And we have to keep cleansing and keep obeying and keep working against temptation and keep repenting and keep seeking God's forgiveness. And that ongoing sanctification is what we're studying now, and in that process is our hope for change. But in asking the question, what would you like to change, the author then lets us kind of stew on that for a moment, and then he kind of turns the page with yet another question, still in the same chapter, but he asks this, is our desire for change as big as God's desire to change us. Perhaps we're settling for too little in our desire to change. Perhaps we're kind of just short-sighted into the nature of our humanity, and, and we're just looking at tomorrow and thinking, I just want to do a little better tomorrow than I did today. Well, that, that's good. But is our desire for change as grand and as comprehensive as God's desire to change us. So then we ask, what do we know about God's desire to change us? We studied it last week, at least introduced Romans chapter 8. God's purpose for us is Christ-likeness. And he spells out that purpose with a promise that he will work all things in our lives, all what we would call the good, bad, and the ugly, he's going to work all those things for our good, and that good is defined as conforming us to the image of Christ. His will is to change us today. So you may not have had any thought until now in Sunday school about the desire to change. Hopefully, that's because between... 7 a.m. and now, you didn't have a whole lot of opportunities to just go off the rails and lose it at home and sin in all kinds of ways. So we may not have given much thought to change this morning. But if we, if we kind of zoom out and think, what was God's desire from first thing this morning for our lives? It's the same as what he has told us in Scripture. His desire is today, before you even woke up and gave it a thought, to conform you more into the image of his son. And on Sunday, it feels kind of obvious how he might do that. Because after all, you're going to hear something in a teaching hour. You're going to hear something in the sermon that hopefully could shape and equip and mold 
But how does he do that on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday? Is our desire for change as big as God's desire to change us? God's designed your relationships. Spouse, parents, friends, mentors, siblings, fathers here on Father's Day. He's designed all those relationships to shape you to be more like Christ. You say, well, some of those relationships, they're not even with believing people. Well, God hasn't said, well, only if they're a believer and only if they're a really consistent, godly believer will they be helpful in your life. No, God can use all those relationships. Even on a Father's Day, there, were, there are some here that would just rave about their fathers and others who would not. And yet the promise of God is that even a relationship that may be so laden with joy or blessing or pain and sorrow, God says in his goodness, he is able and willing to work that for your good. Not just good feeling, or, but true good. This will be the best thing for you. God's going to make you more and more like Christ. So I want, to begin, I want to begin by thinking through this plan of God to shape us more into the image of Christ. But I want us to see how really the whole Bible story unfolds for us in the language of the image of God. So let me start by asking you this, and you can provide the answer. This isn't rhetorical, all right? What is the first thing the Bible tells us about the image of God? What is that? Daniel? Yeah, Genesis chapter 1. We go all the way back to creation, and we might see some things about God. We start getting a glimpse of uh, the plural nature of God, even in these details of the creation account. He makes a lot of stuff on five days. And then on the sixth day, we read of this summary. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. If you just settled on that verse for a while and studied through Genesis chapter 1, our, our men did this in a monthly men's study you would realize how many contemporary cultural issues flow out of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Um, obviously, most of us grew up in a day where we never heard anything about disputed gender. All the world, it seemed, recognized male and female. And yet now, that, that's called into question. The stark science of genetics is set on the shelf because personal identity and feeling has kind of trumped all of that. We've moved into a new era. And now the simple truth that God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them, uh, is being rejected as Romans 1 said it has and always will be by some. Genesis 1, we're made in the image of God. 
So this creation in God's image is the beginning of the story. If, if we picked up a book that's telling the Bible story in the language of the image of God, chapter one would be created in God's image. Now there's a lot there. We know that doesn't mean in the physical shape of because God is a spirit and does not have a body like man. Catechism I learned in elementary school. So we're not shaped to look like God. Some of you might look like your fathers and on Father's Day, you know, you could see the pictures and be like, oh, that, yeah, I can see the family resemblance. This is more in the essence of being. So our essence of being is different than the plant that you have sitting in your window in the kitchen, right? That is made by God and points to God and receives the benefit of God's design and, and all. But that plant isn't made in the image of God. It, it doesn't reflect personhood and essence the same way as humanity does. So after each day of creation, God had called his work on days one, two, three, four, and five good. And it was. And essentially that, that good implies, as we read the text, perfect. It, it works. It's, it's perfect in its beauty, in its unique creativity, in its harmony with all of what God made. Uh, remember, no, no earthquakes and tornadoes and no animals devouring each other and all these things that make up the beauty of nature we see, it, it was even better then. But then on day six, after making man and having now this reflection of his image, God takes that word good, which we already knew means perfect in, in every way, and he says it's very good. It, it's, it's a different kind of complete, perfect goodness and beauty because now there's this image of God on earth. There's this reflection of the divine character being expressed in humanity. We are created in God's image. To think of the Garden of Eden and realize there is no need for change. Nothing has to change. There is no such language as, oh, I wish that I weren't so, I wish I could be more consistent with it. No, there was no need for change. This is the perfect atmosphere for life and existence because it's the way God designed it. But that didn't last long. So how might we describe chapter 2 in our story of the image of God? You got chapter 1, we're made, created in the image of God. What's chapter 2 about? What do you think? Roy? The fall. Uh, this image of God as image bearers now, something happens in Genesis 3. Uh, Adam and Eve are given this opportunity to demonstrate the image of God in both their dominion, in the way they relate to each other, and in their submission to the lordship of God, his authority, carrying out his plan. They, they were kind of vice regents. They're in the place of God ruling. So their ruling dominion isn't because of their own virtue or strength or character. It's, it's a delegated dominion. But all of this, the image of God in, in love, 
is, is lost in, in Adam's sin against his wife even in the fall. Uh, their obedience to God is, is, is surrendered, is, is rejected. Christ, the lordship of God, rejected. And so now, again, in, in summary form, the next chapter is a sad chapter because now this image of God, as, as image bearers, we're broken. We don't do it well. You know, it'd be like having a hanging mirror on the back of your closet and maybe you close the door too hard and it rattles and the whole mirror spider webs into a, a crackled mess. The mirror is shattered. doesn't reflect well. Or you stand at those mirrors at the amusement park and your head's about the size of a peanut and your body looks like, you know, an elephant. You're like, doesn't look right. It's a distorted image. Well, that's what we see in... Genesis chapter 3, Adam, this perfect man, created in the image of God, shuns God's glory, rejects God's authority, and chooses to do what he thinks is best for himself, believing the lie of the devil and assuming God must not be true in what he said. Humanity is now ruined by sin, in bondage to it, under the curse of death. But that's not a description just of Adam and Eve who were told, if you sin, you will die. This is the description of mankind. Every person born since Adam and Eve has the same story. I was made to reflect the image of God, yet by choice to sin, I no longer do that well. Romans 5 makes it clear that in Adam all sinned. He represented all mankind in his choice of rebellion. His choice was your choice. His choice was my choice. We struggle with representative Adam. We don't struggle with representative government around the world. We always think it's a great idea. We certainly don't struggle with representative substitutionary atonement. Hey, if there's a savior that could take my place and die on the cross, I'm all for that. But somehow we, we, we balk at this representative Adam in the garden representing all humanity in this act of sin. But we, we forget we were born with a sin nature. We were inclined not to, oh, I want to worship God. We were inclined to, I'm going to take care of myself. So a three-year-old can claw at their parent if they don't give them what they want. That's because that's what they are. They're not virtuous and sweet. They are murderers at heart. We don't think that of our own kids, and hopefully we put up enough boundaries where we, we might never even see that inclination at its fullest. But how else is it that some would kill? It, it's, it's the nature of man to do whatever it takes to make me happy. That's not the reflection of the character of God. All men have sinned, and in Adam, we all stand guilty. Let me show you Romans chapter 5. Uh, listen to a few verses, beginning in verse 17. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The bad news is, in Adam, all sinned. You were there in Adam. You would have done the same thing. 
Part of us, or part of it is we, we forget we, born with a sin nature, chose to sin, and we, and we still do. Adam didn't have a sin nature. He was perfect in his character. And even in perfection, humanity was still prone to seek his own good and to disbelieve the promise of God to do him good. In other words, the perfect man rebelled. Why do the rest of us, born in sin, think we would have done something differently? So in Adam representing us, bear in mind, he was the perfect man, unlike any of us. And yet scripture is clear, by that one man's sin, death reigned through him over all men. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. He repeats it, saying it a different way. One man's breaking of the law led to the death for all humanity. However, there is the hope of justification and life for humanity because of one man's law-keeping. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Clearly the representative nature of Adam and what we call the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Now, Verse 20, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When you have the thought in your head, I just think everyone should have the choice to accept or reject God's authority. You're not speaking into the future. You should actually remind yourself that that contemplation has already been dealt with. In Adam, everyone already exercised their choice. In Adam, we all said, God, that's a pretty good offer. We can eat of everything in the garden except this one tree, and you'll be good to us but I'm going to go with the devil's deal. He says, he says if we listen to him, we will be like gods and we can, we'll know right from wrong and we can take care of ourselves and maybe even better ourselves. I'm going with that. And these verses in Romans 5 are helping us see that when Adam and Eve did that, all humanity was right there saying, yes, go for it. We thought we were rooting for the underdog, the oppressed, the one being held back by this God who claims all authority. How dare he? So you don't need to stew about everyone having a choice. They did. And in their representative, that first Adam, we all chose to go our own way. That's what the prophet Isaiah says. All we like sheep have gone astray. First in Adam, and because of that sin, constantly gone astray, every one of us. It's our own way. We thought this would work, and Proverbs warns us again and again, there's only two ways. You go your own way, and it ends in destruction, 
or you go the way of the wise. You follow God's way, and it ends in life. Well, after Adam and Eve, God would eventually call another people and ask them to display his glory. He would even call them sons. The first son, Adam, failed, but now the second son, the nation of Israel, was summoned by God. You will be my people. I will be your God. Just be holy like I am holy. Reflect my image. And he gives them all these boundaries, just like the Garden of Eden had boundaries. And he said, just keep these boundaries and reflect my image. Be holy. And we know how that story ends. That, that, that just never worked for Israel. They're always breaking God's law, always going into idolatry, always wanting to be like the other nations. They would fail. Reminding us that in this fallen state, we simply cannot reflect God's image in what we have, this broken mirror of our sinful lives. So by ourselves, we can't change into the kind of people we want to be. If you're trying to help someone else change, you, you can point them towards wise choices and such, but you can't bring about change in them. In our parenting, we, we can't change the hearts of our children. We can curb that behavior. We, we, can, we can put consequences in place that might make them think twice and say, well, I'm not going to do that until I'm out from under their authority. But we can't change their hearts. So this second chapter of this story of God's image is sad because we look back and we see, oh, humanity lost the ability to reflect rightly the image of God. We have fallen short of his glory. It's a sad story, but then we realize it's our story. And that our hope for change isn't found in ourselves. We can't change. We are not the kind of people we should be, and there's no ability in us to become the kind of people we ought to be. So after Genesis 3, when we sin against God and humanity is thrust out of the garden, we're really wondering, what is chapter 3? Because right now, as it stands... This story is over. It is all downhill from here. We've all sinned. And God said that wages of sin is death. So what changes? Why would anyone have any thought of everlasting life or an idea of heaven or being with God forever when we're watching the story unfold, and it happened quickly in just three chapters, we've seen, this is wonderful. God made everything, and, and it's all perfect. To chapter 2, this is a disaster. Sin has ruined everything, and there is no way that any human can ever be right with God again. And so that Adam and Eve wouldn't think, oh, you know what, maybe... Maybe we could just go back to the garden and, and take a mulligan. Just start over. And yet the text is clear. God put this angel there with this 
flaming sword as the symbolic reminder there's no going back to holiness. You can never make clean that which is now unclean. The record is permanently stained and sealed. You have sinned. And no sinner will have a place in heaven with God. So, if we're going to keep reading this story about the image of God, we, we really need something pretty drastic to happen. Something more drastic than even the fall, the ruin by sin. Now we come to the next chapter, which introduces to us the true image of God. John chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. This glory we were supposed to reflect but failed to do it. We've all sinned and fallen short of that glory, Romans 3.23 says. But Jesus came, God the Son, in this human form and shows us the glory of God. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4. the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ has shined. He is the image of God. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. What we can't see of God because he is a spirit, we can see in Jesus who took on human flesh and shows us the character of God, his loving plan of redemption. We see God in Jesus. Hebrews 1.3, says Jesus was the brightness of his glory, the expressed image of his person. Jesus, as the image of God, re reveals the Father to the world. So that in John 14, when he introduces this idea of, listen, life will be hard, but you don't have to be afraid because I am coming back and I am taking you to where I am. And Thomas had these questions, you know, how, how's that going to work? We don't know where you're going how will we ever see the Father? And Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And he would add to that by saying, I and my Father are one. This Godhead was made clear to us in the person of Jesus. We see the true image of God. In Jesus, we see the beauty of God, the character of God, the essence of God, even the plan of God. So we have created in God's image. We have a broken, shattered image in humanity's sin. And now we're introduced to the true image of God. Jesus lives on earth for those years of his ministry. And we see this true image of God. And yet, it's not enough for us to just see God's image in Jesus Christ reminding us that Jesus wasn't just a good example to us. Patrick Mahomes could show me how to throw a football 60 yards in the air. Doesn't mean I can do it. I mean, I could try, but not going to happen. Because it's not just about the example. I might have the example of the perfect righteousness of Christ before me, but I don't have the ability to do that. Jesus shows us the image of God, but I've lost the ability to rightly reflect that image. I'm 
tainted, ruined by sin. So the good news is Jesus is more than just our example of how to reflect God's image. Jesus is restoring us so that we can reflect the image of God. I mentioned 2 Corinthians 5 earlier. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Jesus came to restore us so that we could reflect God's image. Remember, God's purpose works all things for our good. That good is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, who is the firstborn of many that will look just like him. Jesus comes to restore us so that we more and more would look like him, and now God's image is is shown everywhere. It's not just in that one Jesus who came and showed us the image of God. Now the image of God is all over the world and all the nations of the world. Every believer is beginning more and more to reflect his image. This is what the psalmist cried out for when he longed for the glory of God to fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. That's not some blazing light from heaven. That's the image of God on the kingdom, the church, you and I, and we're all over the world. And the light gets brighter and brighter as that glory shines as the image of God is being restored. Yes, ultimately Christ will come back and there will be an absolute and clearly evident dominion of God over all things. But until then, it's it's a little more subtle. But the glory is supposed to be filling the earth as more and more believers begin to reflect the glory of God. So the question kind of becomes, as a Christian how, how much light are you contributing to this dark world we're in? How much light are you shining so that it, man, the glory of God's being seen in that place of business, in that little neighborhood street, in that family? Your circle of influence is where God wants you reflecting his image. If Jesus has made you a new creation, then old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Jesus is still commanding the light to shine out of that darkness, and that light is in you. And even though Paul says he kind of feels like he's this this lamp, and it's cracked and broken and stuck together, but it's restored, and that light is shining out of it. We have this treasure in earthen vessels So that when people see that virtue and that goodness, they recognize there's no way that's his. That must be God's work in him. That's what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, saying that your good works glorify your Father who is in heaven. We've gone from created in God's image to breaking that, and it's a broken image. We see Christ as the true image of God, but not only as an example, but as our rescuer, restorer, so that now he restores us to being able to reflect the image of God. All this to say, Jesus came so that you and I could change. Change so that, 
we would better reflect the glory of God because that's God's primary interest. His glory being known in his creation. But he's chosen to do that through this wonderful plan of making his enemies his sons and daughters by changing us into restored image bearers. So how does this work? How does this change process happen? Look just briefly at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll leave you with this text to think on this week. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, reminds them of their Sunday school lesson when they remembered Moses going up onto the mountain to receive the commandments, and he came down from the mountain, and everybody was kind of taken back because he was literally glowing with light. He had, he had caught just a glimpse of the, the literal, physical, real glory of God, and it affected him bodily with like a glowing glory. And it, it scared people, not because they thought he was an alien, but because they, they were getting a glimpse of the holiness of God, and they were like, it's too close. We, we can't do this. And they asked Moses to wear a veil over his face. So that's, that's the story that Paul is referring to when he writes about Moses, beginning in verse 13, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. The outcome of what was being brought to an end. God was going was gonna to stamp his image and thus his glory on his people. That's the process at work. But their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, when one recognizes that Moses was but a type and a picture pointing us to the reality, when one turns to the Lord and says, Moses told me about righteousness, but it showed me I can't get there. I need Jesus' righteousness because I can't ever earn my own. I keep failing. I keep sinning. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed, transformed into the same image. The same image of what? Of the glory of the Lord. From one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we all with unveiled face, seeing God's glory, where? In the person of Jesus, are changed into his image. The changing comes not by, I need to try harder this week. I need to stop doing that. Don't even turn on the computer if it's going to cause me to lust. I need to stop going to that place if it leads me to drunkenness. I need to stop. I need to literally bite my tongue. We have all these plans to try to keep us from sin, but they're, they're kind of just 
punishments or boundaries. It, that's not what he's saying here about the secret to change, self-discipline or willpower. He's saying this, changing starts with beholding. Look at the text, verse 18. We all, beholding the glory of the Lord, are transformed. Beholding God's glory in Jesus, we are changing to be like him. So our task in, in studying this book on change is not to think, okay, we need to become these people who know how to change and this will be a great TED talk about how to. No, it's, it's really addressing the heart. What, what do I really want? Do I want to stop embarrassing myself by losing my temper? Or do I want to be more like Christ? Because those are two totally different things. One of them may just end you up in hell forever. Because if you're only concerned about being self-righteous and looking good on the outside, then the Bible is full of warnings about how self-righteousness is always an assault on the holiness of God. Or we can say, I see the, I see the fruit of my sin, my, my public failure, but what I need is a heart change. Now the Bible's clear. Beholding Jesus, beholding the image of God, I change. And so this week, we need to wrestle with, yes, what do I want to change? But then immediately get back to, it, is that desire to change as big as God's desire for me? He doesn't merely want me to reign in my sin this week. He wants to literally transform me by being in his presence. Simply put, we, we just can't dive into another week thinking I need to do better. We need to dive into another week thinking I need to know the one who is better. I need to know Jesus. I need to look to Jesus if I have any hope of running the race. So you can change. The author is right because he's leaning on the authority of Scripture. If you'll behold this week, then you too can take on the hope. You can grab onto this hope that you can change. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us in, in this uh, summer journey through this study of sanctification to never lose sight of you who both authored our faith and finished it. So let us look to you and be changed. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.